Hello, CFL fans and degenerate gamblers. Welcome to another edition of Third Down Gamble, the CFL betting podcast. I am your host, Kyle McMahon. Glad you're able to join me once again as we get prepared for week 18 of the CFL season. We're going to do our usual recap of everything that unfolded last week. And before we get to that, I'll remind you that you can follow me on Twitter at KDrive88 if you're not already doing so. And FirstLinePicks.com is the web address if you're interested in the full show archive or some of my other betting-related content. Uh, We're, of course, going to do our usual deep dives on all the Week 18 matchups, uh, but without further ado, we'll have a quick look back before we look forward and uh, see what we learned in Week 17. Well, I would say we learned that the Hamilton Tiger Cats can safely be called the class of the CFL at this point as they go out on Friday night and completely dominate an Eskimos team that we can probably get ready to stick a fork in. We learned that in a season plagued by bad football teams, the Toronto Argonauts are nonetheless emerging as the worst of the worst after they get their doors blown off in BC Place on Saturday night. And uh, when when the curtain closed on Week 17, the Saskatchewan Rough Riders, once 1-3 and three and tied for last place, have now climbed all the way back and find themselves at the top of the Western Division. Let's start off with that Friday nighter in Hamilton. Uh, I kind of like the way this game shook out, not because we were all over the Hamilton minus six number that cashed with ease, although that's always nice, Uh, but because this game combined with the previous meeting between these teams that had taken place two weeks before is a great demonstration of just how big of an impact turnover luck and, and those variables that can't really be accounted for can have on an end result. You heard me talk about how the Eskimos needed a a lot of luck on their side to only lose by a field goal in that first game and how that perhaps wasn't being fully appreciated when the line for Friday's game was set. And to drive that point home, metrically, these two games from the Edmonton offense were almost identical. Just like the first meeting, Edmonton tried to get the run game going but was largely ineffective in doing so with just six successfully graded rushes uh, in the entire game. Passing-wise, more of the same stuff we've grown accustomed to seeing with Logan Kilgore under center, which is generally checkdowns and dump-offs if his first read isn't available. Three starts now for Kilgore, and the result is an offense that's run at about 40% efficiency and, and lacks any kind of explosiveness. Not a great night for the Edmonton defense either. They got beat up badly along the ground. Tyrell Sutton had nearly a hundred yards on eleven carries. Uh, you know, breakout performance for a guy who was was seeing the field for just the second time this year. He he had a really consistent night as well. That that hundred yards wasn't the product of just you know one huge gainer and a, a bunch of stuffs. Uh, it was it was one chunk play after another. Nine total runs for the Tiger Cats of at least ten yards in this game. That's easily a season high for them. Basically, we saw what this Hamilton team is capable of if they don't turn the ball over. Dane Evans finally gets through a game without tossing a pick, and this game was never in doubt because of that. The Edmonton defense certainly didn't get any help at all from their offense, and the Tiger Cats had numerous short fields to operate with, but it's still concerning that a defense that had been so good at stuffing the run in the first half of the year continued to fade in that regard, especially heading into a game now they've got against a BC team that's unexpectedly become a fairly important spot on the schedule. 
in the end, I, I don't think it likely would have mattered, but again, the Eskimos offense set the tone for the night on their first drive of the ball game, and, and it wasn't a good tone. You move down the field and get yourself inside the 10-yard line in, in what was looking like a nice response to Hamilton's game-opening touchdown drive, and, and then it was more of the same. Logan Kilgore scrambles towards the pylon on second down, and rather than getting low or cutting back inside and managing to fall into the end zone, he meekly steps out of bounds at the two-yard line. You know, there comes a point where your quarterback uh, does have to risk taking a hit to score a touchdown. You know, so end result, Jason Moss sends the field goal unit out. Uh, I won't rant again about what a low percentage play kicking a field goal inside the five-yard line is, as evidently that's not a strategy that Coach Moss seems willing to reconsider, despite the the results it has produced for his team, and, and that's probably not changing at this point, considering his propensity for doubling down on poor decisions throughout his tenure on the Edmonton sideline. So Hamilton heads into their final bye week of the year now, uh, running at peak efficiency, and their only real concern between now and the Eastern Final is probably just staying healthy and trying to stay sharp. Mathematically, it is possible that they could slip into second place if they were to lose out and the Alouettes were to win out, um, but with two home games against Ottawa and Toronto still on their schedule, I think you can go ahead now and, and start selling tickets to the Eastern Final if you're the Tiger Cats organization. Moving on to last Saturday, we had the Alouettes continuing their magical run of a season here. They managed to pull out another win, this one over the Stampeders. Uh, but unlike a lot of their wins so far this year, Vernon Adams and the offense didn't actually light it up out there. And this game was instead won by a defense that forced an obscene number of Stampeder turnovers and rode those to a second-half shutout of the Calgary offense to preserve a 21-17 victory. Things didn't look good early on for the Montreal defense. Bo Levi Mitchell continued his pattern of just pounding on opposing secondaries with the intermediate and deeper pass routes. Even with all those injuries on offense, um, and the Snaps did end up getting Reggie Bagleton back into the lineup, uh, so I mean that was a nice ad, but you know, still a lot of injuries and nobody seems to have much of an answer to the Calgary passing game right now. And Montreal got uh, got three fumbles by Stampeder receivers, uh, and they needed all three of those to end up coming out ahead in this one. I, I can't ever remember seeing a game where four different receivers on the same team ended up over 80 yards, uh, but that was the case on Saturday with Josh Huff and Hergie Mayala, probably not recognizable names to anyone who isn't a hardcore CFL fan. Uh, those guys leading the charge with well over 100 apiece, um, you know, so I mean, Bagleton and, and Eric Rogers, uh, you know, were, were third and fourth in terms of receiving yards in this game. Um, but we saw the Stampeders almost blow a game in, in Ottawa back earlier in the season due to having slippery hands on the football, and, and history repeated itself here. Um, you do have to give credit to the Stampeder defense. This is as effective as any defense has looked against Vernon Adams this season, and they limited him to just seven passing plays that went for more than 10 yards in the entire game, which is about half of what we've normally come to expect from the Montreal offense. But uh, turnovers, turnovers, turnovers. More than any other stat, turnover margins tend to decide football games. 
And if you can cross the finish line at plus four in that department, an awful lot has to go wrong elsewhere for you to lose the game. And the Owls managed to just make enough timely plays on both sides of the ball to score win number eight on the season and punch their ticket to the playoffs officially. Yeah, and it just has to be said, we've seen plenty of unexpected results in this league over the 20 plus years that I've been following it and presumably long before that. Um, but Montreal clinching a playoff spot almost a, a month before the end of the season after starting out the year at 0-2 with all the coaching and management and ownership turmoil, that, that has to rank up there as one of the more unlikely sequences of events that I can ever remember. So big props to Kahari Jones and everyone on that roster for the, the season they've put together so far. Looking forward for Calgary, it certainly would have been nice to win this game, but ultimately the three games they have now against Saskatchewan and Winnipeg are going to decide where they finish in the standings, so not exactly a huge setback to lose that one, all things considered. The huge setback loss of the week was no doubt the one incurred by the Winnipeg Blue Bombers, who dropped their third straight. This time to a team they're fighting tooth and nail with for a home playoff date. I'm of course talking about the Saskatchewan Rough Riders, who've now overtaken both the Bombers and Stampeders in the Western Division as winners of nine of their last ten football games. What was the story of this game? Uh, once again, I'd have to say turnovers played the largest role in the outcome. Neither of these offenses really got rolling at any point throughout the ball game. It was pretty clear early on the Winnipeg's game plan was to pressure the quarterback, and they succeeded fairly well in doing so, sacking Cody Fajardo four times and flushing him out of the pocket uh, many more times than that. Fajardo got his deep shots in, hitting on three passes of over 38 yards, uh, including the 61-yard touchdown connection to Shaq Evans late in the game that locked down the victory and uh, if you were if you were watching on on Twitter there that uh, it also locked down uh, over on on Fajardo's passing yards which was the uh, the one line I was able to identify from this game that I I really liked going into it um but compared to their last two times out Saturday's performance uh, probably has to be considered a, a win for the Bombers defense who Gave their own offense every opportunity to step up and take control of this game, but the the Riders' own defense proved equal to the task. In terms of the yardage picked up in the possession, this game was pretty evenly played. Three times in the second half, Chris Strebler moved Winnipeg into scoring range, only to turn the ball over either with interceptions or a fumble. This game didn't have a touchdown recorded until we were inside the three-minute warning. If Streveler merely protects the football instead of giving it away, uh, there, there's a very good chance the the Bombers, even if they just kick field goals on those those drives that ended in turnovers, uh, chances are they're able to either come away with a win or, or at the very least they'd have found themselves leading in the fourth quarter. Um, but I've kind of stressed this point throughout the season. The the Bombers just do not function very effectively when they're they're trailing in ball games. You know, we know they like to run, that's no secret. Um, you know, unfortunately, opposing coaching staffs know this too, though. Um, <laughs> Andrew Harris was facing a lot of full boxes on first downs in this game as the Riders committed to stuffing the run and dared Strevler to beat them with the pass. And the result was a disaster on first down for Winnipeg. They they ran at just 37% efficiency. That's a, a season low. You know, and it forced them into known passing situations on a huge number of second down snaps, and they they ended up passing at a sub forty percent success rate on those those second downs as well for the the second week in a row. 
the losses to Hamilton and Montreal, uh, Winnipeg was still in position to absorb those, but uh, this is the one that stings, and, and they've they've responded by going out and making a trade with the Argonauts for Zach Caleros. Um, I'll touch on that in a lot more detail when we preview their game against Montreal this weekend, which they absolutely must win now if they still have any hopes of finishing in first place in the West. The Riders, uh, they'll take their hot streak into into Calgary on Friday night with, with first place on the line. Uh, last order business, though, to take care of from the previous week as uh, the Lions posting their fourth consecutive win. Uh, this one was a no-doubter over the hapless Toronto Argonauts who needed a last-second garbage-time touchdown just to avoid posting the second-worst shutout loss in CFL history. We've seen some historically inept offensive performances this season, um, you know, be they from this uh, Lions team or uh, or the Red Blacks. Um, you know, you know, for whatever reason, uh, a lot of close games, a lot of entertaining football games this year. But for for some reason, when it's gone badly for someone this year, it's it's gone absolutely bloody horribly in a, a few cases, and this one might just take the cake. You know, Toronto had to drive most of the length of the field on their final possession of the game just to creep up over the 100-yard the passing threshold. And in total, they only controlled the football for uh, under 17 minutes, which is about as extreme a gap as you'll ever see in a professional football game. There wasn't really any redeeming quality whatsoever to the display they put on. They, they were abysmal in all facets of the game from start to finish, and BC continued to have success with the same simplified game plan that's carried them to these four straight wins, running the ball extremely well and balancing that with the short passing game to move the sticks with ease for as, as long as they really needed to in a, in a game that was over in the second quarter. Yeah, Here's a funny stat. Uh, through three quarters of play, and I, I used... Three quarters is the cutoff uh, because for the first time all season, a game was so out of hand by the three-quarter mark that I, I elected not to include any fourth-quarter stats in the in the global data set. But uh, yeah, through three quarters of, of play, the Lions didn't actually complete a pass for more than nine yards on first down. These scoring drives were were long and methodical. These weren't uh, you know one breakdown here or there that that led to a huge gain. Um, you know, for how many points ended up on the on the scoreboard. Um, you know, of course, there were a couple of pretty short trips into the end zone for BC after a, a litany of early turnovers from the Argonauts' offensive and, and special teams units that, that set up some short fields there and, and really ended this game before it, before it ever got going. But um, yeah, the only real order of, of business that hung in the balance here uh, was the the under on that 51.5 point total. And uh, I guess I'll take this opportunity to hammer on the command center again. Um, in a game that ends 55-8, to eight, I'd imagine something like this goes largely unnoticed, but it, it astounds me how awful these guys continue to be. Uh, you know, whoever these guys watching the game back at Mission Control are... The play I'm I'm talking about is Brian Burnham's. Well, what it it appeared to be a great touchdown catch late in the first quarter. It, it was ruled a score on the field, but uh, you know it goes to automatic review, and you know to to everyone watching, you, you had to think this was getting called back. Um, even through the television, you could hear the Lions fans in the stadium kind of let out a, a groan. Uh, or whatever you want to call it, when they saw the replay, is it was it was pretty clear and obvious to really anyone uh, 
that that Burnham never secured the football before his football uh, before his foot came down out of bounds. Um, you know, but then you have the head official strolls out to midfield and announces the play on the field stands. Uh, even Glenn Suter and Chris Cuthbert calling the game on TSN were kind of at a loss for for words on that one. And I I just don't understand how you can possibly get that call wrong. You know, but the interesting thing here, and you know, is it it pertains uh, pertains to the betting market. If the if the correct call gets made in that situation, the, that total is sitting under, sitting right at fifty one, in, instead of sitting on fifty five in the final seconds of the game. In in the end, the Argos do convert a pair of third and longs to eventually march down the field and score with a few seconds left, which you know theoretically would have ruined the under in in bad beat fashion, anyways. But still something that frustrates me, knowing that a a very routine call getting completely pooched like that uh, had a very high probability of of being the difference in the end between a a win or a loss on on the total bet. We know from his sound bites that CFL Commissioner Randy Ambrosi has not exactly been enamored with the inconsistency and overall ineptitude of the guys in the replay room. And I hope he saw this one, because if a call like that were to happen in a game decided by, uh, let's say, less than six touchdowns, uh, you know, God forbid a playoff game, it would be a complete embarrassment to the CFL, and there's just no excuse at all to get that review wrong, uh, short of some technical difficulty or something like that, and we have no indication that something like that actually happened. But moving along, um, you know, we'll we'll touch on what lies ahead for these two teams as we, we jump into our Week 18 previews. We've got four weeks left and the fates of several teams still hang in the balance, but two teams whose fates have already been sealed will kick off the week on Friday evening as the Argonauts trudge back home and prepare, well, who knows, presumably prepare, uh, to take on the Ottawa Red Blacks who were idle last week. With a last place finish on the line, uh, we've seen the Argos installed as two and a half point favorites at the Open and it would appear Ottawa has taken the bulk of the early money, this line now sitting on minus one. So obviously there's a lot of unknowns at the moment surrounding both franchises, but something we can confirm is that rookie Will Arndt will be getting the start for the Red Blacks at quarterback, and at this point, you know, why not get a look at him? This won't be his first game action, uh, it will be his first start but Rick Campbell's got him into several games for some mop-up duty throughout the course of the year, and all things considered, you probably couldn't really differentiate his performance from that of Dominique Davis or Jonathan Jennings, at least not in recent weeks. 20 for 36, a couple of picks spread out over four appearances. Um, you know, he'll have the unenviable task of trying to kickstart the league's worst offense, uh, but at this point I think we can safely say things can't really get any worse for the Red Blacks. The receiving core is at least finally healthy again, and Brendan Glanders will get the start at running back over Moses Madu. Uh, Toronto defense, not a lot of positive things to say about this unit, as you can well imagine. Bear Woods had given them a bit of a shot in the arm in the middle, at least uh, in recent weeks, but he went on the sixth game before last week's matchup in BC, and uh, it was clear and obvious that Toronto had no answers between the hash marks as John White just ran them over. You know, Ian Wilde, bless his heart, is not a starting quality linebacker, uh, and you know, it showed. Secondary, nothing new here. Those guys have been a disaster all year, and on Saturday it looked like it was 
Anthony Covington's turn to be on display in a rather negative light as he got beat up for for more than one of those Lions majors. You know, at this point, it's it's hard to really say what sort of personnel changes we might see on the Argos side. Uh, let's let's go over the big news, I guess, um, out of Toronto this week. And that, of course, is the dismissal of Jim Pop as the team's general manager. Toronto has gone back to the pinball well again. I'm not sure how many times the same guy can come in and help turn things around, but Michael Clemens did it as both a player and a coach in the past, and the hope is he can maybe sprinkle some of that magic again as the team's general manager. I'm a little skeptical of pinball in terms of his ability to construct a roster, just because he hasn't really been in, involved with the CFL as, as anything more than a team ambassador, figurehead type of role over the last decade. So I, I question whether or not he's got the connections in the scouting network available to recruit in the offseason at a level that can turn this team around. But by the looks of things, assistant GM John Murphy might be doing more of the traditional nuts and bolts you know, GMing. So pinball's role might be centered more on glad-handing season ticket holders and trying to repair the Argos brand as, as much as anything else. Um, you know, So we'll have to wait and see. We do know that Zach Caleros will not be appearing under center for the Argos this year as they elected to move him to Winnipeg yesterday as the trade deadline arrived. Caleros hadn't made any appearances yet in Toronto after they brought him in back in the middle of summer. Still suffering the effects of the concussion that uh, was given to him on the opening drive of the season while he was still a member of the Rough Riders. Toronto hasn't named a starter yet for Friday night. I can't imagine they go back to James Franklin again. For as bad as they've looked most of the year, they've they've looked significantly worse with Franklin running the offense than McLeod Bethel-Thompson. And after probably the worst offensive performance potentially in franchise history, I, I just have to think Franklin is probably out of mulligans, at least for this season. And there's plenty of blame to go around here. Toronto's offensive line hasn't been good enough. The decision to release Chris Van Zyl back in training camp remains highly questionable. The running game is still non-existent. I, I lay a lot of the blame for that at the feet of offensive coordinator Jacques Chapdelaine, who seems to have called this offense as though he's had Doug Flutie back there throwing the ball. Uh, but regardless, James Wilder never got on track this year, uh, even when he did get some touches. And Brandon Burks going down injured a couple weeks ago really killed any potential spark the ground game was going to provide with the current offensive setup. So unfortunately, the talent the Argonauts did manage to put on the field this year, and much of it at the receiver position, has, has gone completely to waste. If I'm Argo's management here, I, I probably want a decent look at, at Dakota Prukrop as the quarterback the last few games. I can't imagine Franklin returns at this point. Bethel Thompson is also a free agent who I, I definitely think finds work somewhere else in the CFL, but probably isn't a guy Toronto brings back again. You know, So I think the prudent move here would be to, to get Prukop some reps and see if there's any potential there. Yeah, this is an organization that flushed Caleros the first time around. Trevor Harris was there for a time. Cody Fajardo, of course, moved on before ever getting a, a real look. And in, in the meantime, the Argos actually gave up assets to acquire Franklin, as, as well as Drew Willie, who they wasted a first-round pick in acquiring. I want to say that was back in 2015, maybe 2016. You know, and they gave up a draft pick to bring back Caleros for a few weeks this year, and he never touched a football. 
point is this organization has had a really poor track record in in recent years when it comes to identifying talent at the quarterback position and putting those players in a situation to succeed. And they've got four meaningless games here to close out the year, so they may as well find out exactly what they they do have in, in Prukop before they potentially make the same mistake again. Not a whole lot else to say here, really, uh, other than the aren't announcement. Things have been pretty quiet out of Ottawa. I think we get a professional effort out of the Red Blacks here, something the Argos failed to provide in BC last week. So in that sense, maybe you look towards the Red Blacks having a potential advantage here but let's not forget that these teams played each other less than a month ago and Toronto rolled up over 40 points and and blew the Red Blocks out in Ottawa Um, you know that came with Bethel Thompson running the Argos offense from a pure player personnel perspective I still think in in spite of their last two results that Toronto is the more talented side here and certainly should have enough going on offense to win this game if Bethel Thompson uh was indeed taking the snaps, uh, but we just don't know right now. Effort-wise, we'll see what kind of an effect Pinball can have here. Obviously, he's a huge personality. Everybody loves Pinball, and if if anyone can walk into the locker room of a 2-12 and team and inspire the group to go out there and play this game like it's the Grey Cup, it's probably him. Toronto naturally is in a situation here where a strong finish or at least a non-awful finish to the year is probably something the coaching staff wants as a potential means of preserving their own jobs. With the coaching salary cap and Corey Chamberlain under contract for next year, there's no guarantee he's not back on the sidelines in, in 2020 regardless, but I think this club has to at least show a pulse here in the last month to make that hypo- hypothetical decision uh in any way palatable to the fans that might still be interested in handing over their hard-earned money to the Argonauts in the form of ticket sales. But are the 43 guys on the roster going to buy into all this? I'm just not sold on that, and I I can't say with any certainty what kind of effort we're going to get out of Toronto here. If you're looking for a lean, I... I'd probably go with Toronto at home uh, against uh, what I perceive to to be a you know an even worse roster in, in Ottawa. But you know, unless we get confirmation that Bethel Thompson is going to be the the quarterback to start this game, I'd probably just stay away from uh, what we'll dub the the toilet bowl um, on Friday night. The Friday doubleheader will conclude with what promises to be a much more compelling and watchable football game as the Riders ride on into Calgary. Stampeders have opened as minus two and a half favorites. That's been nudged up onto the key number of three where it continues to sit. With a two-point lead over Calgary and, and Winnipeg coming into this contest, a, a win here for Saskatchewan would go a long way towards securing a first-place finish. Due to being blown out by the Stampeders in their first meeting of the year, it's unlikely the Riders would be able to win this game by enough points to take the point differential tiebreaker from the Stampeders in a in a scenario where they split the season series at one apiece. But Saskatchewan would be in a position where they only needed to pick up two wins on their remaining schedule, which includes a visit to BC Place and a home-and-home with Edmonton to clinch top spot you know and chances are you know potentially even one win in those games might be enough to get them into first uh, if they can come up with a win here 
for Calgary, a win would put them in a position where they control their own destiny heading into the final three games, win out their guaranteed first place, win this one, and then win two out of three. Probably a decent chance that would also be enough. Uh, but a loss here would, would put a big dent in their hopes of securing that crucial first round bye, and it would potentially put them in a spot where they needed to win both remaining games against Winnipeg in order to stay ahead of the Bombers, who, for all their struggles, uh, at least did themselves the favor of winning the first game between uh, between Calgary and Winnipeg, which would enable the Bombers to win the head-to-head season series two games to one if if they can simply manage a a split with Calgary to close the year. So lots of moving parts here standings-wise, and other than Winnipeg pretty much losing any realistic chance of finishing ahead of the Riders by virtue of their loss in Regina last week, any other scenario is still on the table. Mathematically, it's still actually possible for any of the five Western teams to finish in the crossover spot. Obviously, some extreme long-shot scenarios would, would have to come into play for any of uh, the Sask, Calgary, or Winnipeg trio to drop to fourth, but there's no question uh, a lot is at stake this weekend for all three of these teams. I think the Riders are, you know, they're almost still a relative unknown coming into this spot, which is unusual to be saying so late in the year, but the one criticism, if if you can term it that, during this run of nine wins in ten games is that they've so rarely had to face a team that was actually at, at full strength at key positions. You go back to the very start of this the, this run of theirs, and uh, they they win a pair of games over BC, who is in, in total disarray. You know, then they catch Hamilton with Dane Evans making, you know, his very first start. Uh, Montreal with Pipkin in, in that game that got called off in the third quarter due to the lightning. You know, then, then Ottawa, um, you know, Dominic Davis comes out and throws picks on, on his first three passes of the game. The Labor Day series against Winnipeg, they just lost Matt Nichols for the season, and Andrew Harris ended up getting suspended for both those games. You know, then they beat Montreal in, in large part due to a fumble from, uh, you know, Boris Beattie, uh, you know, on a punt in the fourth quarter. And then they beat up Toronto, who decided to go back to James Franklin and, of course, Winnipeg again last week, you know, still without their starting quarterback. You know, and not to get too far ahead of things, but they'll presumably be facing Edmonton twice without Trevor Harris to end the season as well. So there's a, a few things to be mindful of here. You can easily say, you know, hey, Saskatchewan technically has played the whole season without their own starting quarterback. Uh, you know, they had a lot of early injuries on the offensive line, and they're not the only team to take advantage of other teams getting hit with injuries. I mean, that's that goes without saying. Um, and ultimately, all you can do is beat the team across from you on on any given day, regardless of their situation, and and all that stuff is true. But there's no doubt they've they've caught some breaks schedule wise, really just through random luck. Um, Calgary, as we've talked about, has has no shortage of injuries throughout their roster. But the one thing you can say coming into this game that we haven't been able to say uh, about really any Riders opponent other than maybe Montreal back in mid-September is, is that their opponent has their starting quarterback healthy and the team as a whole is playing at a fairly high level. Calgary not having lost a game since mid-August until last week's setback. And, you know, and that was a game they largely controlled on offense and gave away with turnovers. 
So it's going to be interesting to me to see how the riders are, are able to respond if they take a couple punches in the mouth in the first quarter, uh, something they just haven't really had to worry about all that much lately. I, I look at the way Bo Levi Mitchell is slinging the ball out of the pocket right now, and this defensive line is going to really have their work cut out for them trying to bring pressure. Calgary's faced an Eskimos team that repeatedly uh, brought blitzes relentlessly throughout the season, and they managed the blitz very well in all three of those games, winning all three. You've got a situation now where injuries in the receiving core have necessitated guys stepping up, and you know as we're witnessing with Josh Huff right now, uh, this seems to have just uncovered yet more talent laying in wait for an opportunity Um and with Reggie Bagleton back in the fold now, uh, once again, this receiving core is, is looking first rate. This is probably going to be the Saskatchewan secondary's biggest test probably all year. Um, if the Riders try to run a zone coverage scheme in, in hopes of not getting beat deep when the Blitz can't get home, I, I think they're in for a world of trouble. Um, for a guy who missed almost the entire first half of the season, the timing... Bo Levi Mitchell has shown since he got back on the field as far as being able to throw balls to a spot and just knowing his receiver is going to be the only guy within arm's reach of those tosses when they arrive uh, has been impeccable. If I'm game planning on the Saskatchewan side this week, I, I think I'm going to lean on the individual athleticism and big playability of, of the guys in my secondary and hope that they can win more balls than they lose uh, going into a, a tighter man coverage set. The Riders have invested a, a lot of money on this side of the ball. Um, you know, that's been their bread and butter going back to, you know, really Chris Jones's arrival there. His stamp's still firmly on this roster. Um, and they're going to need their, their playmakers to be on point facing a, a quality of quarterback they're, they're not accustomed to, to seeing lately. You know, question is, how effective can Calgary continue to be with a run game that's almost non-existent? Don Jackson's back in the fold again. This has really been a, a revolving door at this position all season, though, with, with none of Jackson, Kadeem Carey, or Romar Morris managing to stay healthy for more than a couple of games at a time. Terry Williams has had the majority of the carries this year uh, simply because he's been the only healthy back available a lot of the time. But really, to my eye, he's more of a return man who can fill in at running back if needed, not a guy you want to lean on for 15 carries. What can Jackson do on, on what looks like it's going to be a cold night temperature-wise, having barely played this year? I mean, I wouldn't bank on a ton, uh, you know, especially going up against that Saskatchewan defensive front. Um. You know, that said, Saskatchewan hasn't exactly stuffed the run in, in recent weeks, uh, at least not in situations where they have to respect the opposing offense's ability to pass against them. Stacking eight guys up in the box is fine against Chris Strevler. It's not an option against Bo Levi Mitchell, so it's it's going to be a different-looking defense than we saw last week for sure. As far as looking at what we can expect out of the Calgary defense, Saskatchewan likes to set up the big play with the run game. Calgary is, and by a fairly significant margin, the best team in the league at preventing big pass plays. If you look back through the entire season, Cody Fajardo likely had his worst showing of the year against this same defense, uh, albeit we're going back to week four for that now. Uh, needless to say, he's made strides forward as a starting quarterback between then and now. Um, but one thing that has been constant throughout the season is, is that the success or lack of success that the Riders run game provides, uh, specifically in standard down situations, 
it tends to correlate with their overall offensive performance quite closely. And I mean, that's not exactly an earth-shattering statement, but when they've drifted away from running the ball on first down, that's generally when they've gotten themselves into trouble. You know, the good news from their perspective is that the Stampeders have defended the run um, quite poorly uh, on first down in the second half of the season. You can go all the way back to their game against Winnipeg in the middle of August, and other than one game against Toronto, who wouldn't run the ball if it was their only way out of a burning building, um, they've been getting stung for around a 60% success rate uh, for opposition runners on first down. Corey Greenwood recently being lost for the season dealt uh, that run defense a significant blow, and the Stampeders have brought in Marcus Ball to try to plug a, a hole at the linebacker position. Dave Dickinson wouldn't tip his hand, but I'd lean towards Ball being in the lineup on Friday. You know, if nothing else, it's a fresh body late in the season. He was back home coaching high school football when the phone rang. Um, spent the last two years in Toronto after a stint in the NFL. We'll, we'll see what he has left in the tank here. Jamar Wall has been moved to the injured list, which is another blow to a defense that really can't catch a break, it seems. Um, and that might be an underrated loss here. Wall has been really effective this season, taking on a, a bigger role on this defense, um, you know, at least visually compared to previous seasons. So there's potentially going to be some soft spots out there for the Riders to exploit, but the the numbers don't lie. This this defense has been money in, in terms of preventing points all season. You look back over the entire schedule, I, I believe that game in August against the Alouettes was the only time since week three that the Stampeders' uh, defense as a unit gave up 20 or more points. The special team's coverage unit has allowed several touchdowns against, in, including uh, last week again, another one, uh, which led to Calgary as a team giving up more than 20 somewhat regularly. But the defense specifically, uh, in part due to all the turnovers they create, is, is really not giving up a whole lot on the scoreboard. So we're sitting right on a field goal now. A little bit of a premium at some books if, if you want to take the riders plus the three. Uh, they're, they're laying minus 120. Um, I'll take that as a sign that this probably isn't going to push across the three, which is the most important number in the CFL betting market. But if it did move to three and a half or four, though, that, that definitely changes your outlook. Um, I'm finding myself leaning the way of the Stampeders here for as long as this sticks on three. Saskatchewan, to me, is is still the, the team that has something to prove here. Calgary's had a firm hold on first place in the division for a number of years, and, and while I don't think they're quite at the level of previous years, they're finding a way to win most of these key divisional games. The injuries are always a concern, and, and I know I've been feeling as though we're always just a week away from finally seeing the straw that breaks the camel's back in that regard. But until that day comes, it's it's not easy to doubt their ability to come through uh, in a big game, especially at home, you, you know, even though they've struggled at McMahon Stadium this year for some odd reason. It wouldn't shock me by any stretch of the imagination to see Saskatchewan go out there and do what they've done nine of the past ten weeks, which is win the football game, be it on the strength of their defense, offense, or both. But until they show that they can land the knockout punch on the league's top dog, I'll, I'll back the more proven entity. Total on this game sits at 47.5, not seeing any movement there. That's yeah, a pretty tight number. It's cold in Calgary this week, so grip on the football is potentially something that might cause an issue for the quarterbacks. Both these defenses are strong against the pass to begin with. We probably see a you know a pick or two that snuffs out a drive. 
this would lead me in the direction of the under. I, I think getting 48 points purely out of the offenses is probably unlikely here. However, both teams have return units capable of scoring, and, and as mentioned, the Stampeders have surprisingly bled kick return touchdowns against this year at an alarming rate. Both defenses are a threat to score, and, and honestly, this total might boil down to something as simple as whether or not those couple of interceptions that we, we probably see occur uh, you know, in the end zone to take points off the board or, or down at the other end of the field to create points. So I don't foresee myself taking a firm position on this number between now and kickoff, but I, I would lean towards a defensive game where where turnovers and returns strongly dictate whether it gets over the number or not. All right, if you've been listening lately, you'll notice that I've broken a couple of shows into two segments in recent weeks, um, and I'm going to follow that pattern again here. Still waiting on some lineup news and injury notes to filter out of the four teams involved in the Saturday games. So I'm going to go ahead and leave you with this as part one of the show, and hopefully by Friday, late morning or afternoon, maybe uh, I'll have part two ready for air, uh, where we'll take a look at the Alouettes Bombers and Lions Eskimos games with all the relevant information we need to get some action down. Thank you as always for listening. Hopefully you found this edition of Third Down Gamble. Helpful and informative, and we'll see you again very soon.